coming to uh, start again, no matter what's happened. I wanted to work with that theme uh, in part because of the, the time of the year, the, uh, the holiday of the new year, the fact that for many of us, we're, we have a quiet time. For many of us, we're not working this week, and it could be a time for reflection. It's a kind of a stopping sometimes after what for some of us was um, somewhat, of, somewhat of a frenzy of the uh, holiday time, and possibly some of you will re-enter that frenzy this evening. <laughs> <laughs> Up to you. <laughs> um, but it's, it's, a, it's a time to, for many of us to be quiet, to reflect on where our lives are, are at, maybe where the world's at. It's a time also to, uh, in terms of the culture, that we are encouraged to begin again. We're encouraged to <coughs> reflect, to let go of what's old and what uh, can be dropped like the snakeskin and to welcome in the old that which is growing in us, that which is blossoming. So I want to, I want to explore some aspects of that theme this morning and I think uh, encourage us to use this time as a time of renewal, as a time of reflection and deepening, and also to come to see the way that our ordinary daily practice can also have those qualities of beginning. That in a way we are doing a practice which is about constant renewal, constant beginning, constant beginning again. Uh, constant coming back to, to um, our depths and our uh, a fresh way of seeing things. There's um, it's a way in which, at this time, in, in this hemisphere at least, it's a, it's, it's a time of most darkness. We know that the light is starting again, that we have these cycles of darkness and light, that we are, in many ways, we enter into this quiet time in the dark in order to um, let the light come back in. There's a beautiful poem that I wanted to read you by uh, Pablo Neruda, which expresses this, this notion of of letting the, letting the light come in at this time. This is Neruda. If each day falls inside each night, there exists a well where clarity is imprisoned. In the night, he says, clarity is imprisoned in a way. We need to sit on the rim of the well of darkness and fish for fallen light with patience. I'll read that again. If each day falls inside each night, there exists a well where clarity is imprisoned. We need to sit on the rim of the well of darkness and fish for fallen light with patience. We might take as our, our our work, if we have a time for some quiet time or reflection, think of ourselves as all on the rim of darkness, fishing for fallen light. And it is, you know, it is, um, it's, 
in some ways it's a dark time in terms of nature and it's also a difficult time in terms of the world. You know, it's been, it's been a time of a lot of war and conflict and it's been, um, it's been a time when many of us could, could feel depressed or despairing about the, about the state of the world, you know, with, with all the war and conflict. It made me think of the, some of the Jewish prophets who, you know, 27, 2800 years ago um, said, more or less, this is, not, this is not the best that we're capable of. You know, I, I, I looked over last night, I looked over the prophet Isaiah and found some passages in his, in his work. Um, this is what he was saying like 2800 years ago. All are greedy for profit and chase after bribes. They show no justice to the orphan. The cause of the widow is never heard. And he speaks of his own land. He says, once integrity lived there, but now assassins. Very strong, strong voice. And so we, if we can, we can use this time for for retreat and reflection, and really, it's a way of stopping. You know, this this society that we live in tends to make us overwork. You know, I mean, I think there's evidence, and there was a book a few years ago called *The Overworked American*. You might not have had time to read it, <laughs> <laughs> but it was it was about the way that actually factually. People are working like 10 or 20 percent more than, what, 20 or 30 years ago. And we, we tend to be overworked, and we really need to find places to stop. I, I wanted to read something from that uh, Diana Winston once, once wrote, who's going to be here, and I think in three weeks, who's, who's um, my teaching colleague. And she said this in one moment of feeling overworked and overstressed. I don't have time to write letters, read books, visit my friend, play with my little brother, kiss, touch, sigh, dance, relate, relate, eat ice cream, make music, cook, pray, smell, meditate, take a walk. My God, make it all stop. I don't have time and it's running out and I'm running fast and furiously and I want to stop. Ouch, it's painful. Why won't it stop? Can't you make it stop? My God, what's wrong with this country? Have we all gone crazy? Are we insane? We've lost touch, we've lost touch, we've got to stop this endless running about. All I want to do is slow down, just crawl into bed and rock myself to sleep. This craziness, not this crazy running about. I'm just tired, please somebody, you have to stop. (laughs) (laughs) Is that familiar? Sometimes, and so this this really need to take some time, and if if you haven't scheduled some time, take some time to reflect, to look more deeply, to ask, you know, what is where, where am I going? What is my life about? Uh, what's, what's happening? Um, I know when I was, um, when I was teaching at, um, I, remember, I remember when I was teaching in Kentucky, for, where I taught for four years at the University of Kentucky, um, I would urge my students to take some time just to reflect on what they had learned after a semester. And most of them just went right from final exams to working the next day and had almost no time to, to reflect. And I, th- I think we, we often are um, 
sort of a reflection-deprived society and maybe a dream-deprived society. You know, you know, instantly the alarm, wake up, get to work, and there. And I think by doing this practice, I think we know something of the power of reflection or looking more deeply, and it's some, it's so crucial. I know, I know for myself. Uh, over New Year's, I've probably in the last 25 years, I've, I've been on retreats about three quarters of the time for a week or 10 days over New Year's. And it's been an amazing time just to look more deeply, to let things settle. You know, we, we, we need to let all the thoughts and all the projects settle and go to, go to what's deeper. You know, and there's a way in which we do that in this practice. We really learn how to, we learn how to stop. We learn how to um, stop for longer periods. We learn how to stop for shorter periods. Because in a way, this practice that we do um, is about cultivating the qualities of stopping and stillness and reflection, uh, of entering into the darkness, of um, inviting our own uh, mystery to be, um, to be more present to ourselves, away from all the, away from all the busyness. And so we, um, I think it's valuable to see that we really, in our, in our daily practice, this is what we do, that we, we cultivate the ability to be fresh with the moment and to, to, to have a new beginning. You know, that we, we come into our practice and we invite, as it were, a new beginning. We invite the old patterns to, um, to come through and we let go of them. We invite a, a freshness to experience. You know, we know, I think, the, the passage from Suzuki Roshi in his, in his book, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. He says, in Japan, we have a phrase which means beginner's mind. The goal of practice is always to keep our beginner's mind. Suppose you recite the Prajna Paramita Sutra only once. It might be a very good recitation, but what would happen if you recited it twice, three times, four times, or more? You might easily lose your own original attitude towards it. The same thing will happen in your other practices. For a while, you'll keep your beginner's mind. If you continue to practice one, two, or three years or more, although you may improve some, you are liable to lose the limitless meaning of your original mind, of your beginning. And so it's valuable at this time to not only um, take some time for larger reflection, but also to reflect on the sense of new beginning and the way that we can begin um, in our practice, the way that we can uh, cut through the, um, the proliferating thoughts and habits of mind, you know, that just go on almost endlessly. You know, there's this wonderful phrase, and you know, in Buddhism and Buddhist uh, psychology, they, we actually have a technical phrase for the proliferation of the mind, which, which I like. It's, it's called papancha. P-A-P-A-N-C-A, and it's this wonderful phrase which literally means conceptual proliferation. And it's like these, um, I, I'm reminded of this um, cartoon, which in the first block just has a person sitting with the bubble above the person's head, just empty. And then it, over the next three frames, it gradually fills up. And by the end of the fourth frame, it's not only filled up, but it's actually squished down the person. The, all, there, all there is is the proliferating thoughts. All there is is this papancha. And I think when we sit, we actually give 
a chance for that to, to lessen, to run out. That's why it's so valuable to see those patterns, to see those habits, because that helps us to work through them. And in retreats, it's even more valuable because there we actually, sometimes when we sit, you know, sometimes we can just have the experience when we're sitting in daily life, especially if we're busy, we just sit for 20 or 30 minutes. And what do we do? We just, some of us just sit and plan all, all that time, right? And it's really valuable to do a little bit longer periods because then we get the sense, yes, the proliferation does die down. <laughs> the proliferation does end, and it really does. And we just sit for enough, and it's the mind, uh, because it's the deeper level of the mind to, to actually be more silent and to be more present to things. It's, a, it's actually a deeper quality of our being. And I think we have to have, uh, it's, so it's, we have to have that experience on retreats or other places of the mind being quiet. And then we start to know, oh yeah, the mind does its thing, the proliferation does its thing. We give a situation where it can quiet down. We give the conditions for it to quiet down, and it does so. And we have to, we have to practice for a while before we know that. But as we know that more and more, then those habits and those patterns aren't so much enemies. They're just, they're, they're just doing their thing. And it's not really who we are. There's something that's deeper in our mind and our heart that's, that's present, that is actually, we come to know as a deeper part of ourselves. One of the wonderful aspects of uh, the sense of beginning again and the sense of beginner's mind is that we can do that whatever has happened. We've had difficulty, we've had pain, we've had um, a difficult year, we've had a difficult day. The call of practice is just to be, let it go and begin again. There's an incredible quality of mercy, really, that we, that we have when we just sit or that we're invited to uh, develop further in our lives. It's a quality of saying, whatever has happened, I can let it go. And the practice, all the, pra- the practice doesn't ask me to explain myself. You know, the practice doesn't say, what have you done the last year? <laughs> you know, the practice just says, be present. It doesn't ask me to say, you know, what were you doing last night or whatever. It doesn't ask me to say, you know, why did you waste the last week with totally worthless pursuits? It doesn't ask that. It just asks you to be present. And if you have judgments and thoughts, then note them. And there's something so uh, merciful about that um, that I love that as as an aspect of practice. It's really, there's a quality of forgiveness and and mercy that's built right into the the sense of practice. And yet it's very very ironic that, as as we, I think, mentioned in the last weeks, there's a curious um, dynamic about um, awareness practice that when we become aware, when we wake up, we often find ourselves criticizing ourselves for having been asleep. It's this curious dynamic, which I think we have to be alert for, that, and, and that we, um, you know, we come into the present moment, we wake up, we see clearly, and it's as if the first thing we have to do is to complain about how we weren't like this in the past. There, there's something that's a little bit crazy about it, right? <laughs> 
Here it's like we've come to the promised land and all we can think about is the pain of the past and blame ourselves for not being in the promised land in the past, even though in the moment we're in the promised land. So it's something to look out for. It's something to be careful for. It's valuable to be aware if there is pain or grief, but we have to be careful of that, that judgmental quality of um, complaining that we haven't got there sooner. We haven't got, complaining that we haven't got to the present sooner. <laughs> and yet we, yet we do that. We, you know, we, we, um, we have these new beginnings in the middle of our lives. We don't sort of begin at the beginning of our lives and have re- everything work out perfectly, do we? You know? Even, even the Dalai Lama, who had this perfect upbringing, so-called, you know, was people probably started to tutor him with meditation and wisdom teachings when he was two or three, you know, gave him little bodhisattva dolls to play with. <laughs> and, and even so, because he says, because he was born into this part of the country where everyone was irritable and angry a lot of the time, so he was too. You know, and he said it took him until he was 20 to kind of work out some of the irritability in his, in his nature. You know. And you know, we have a little bit less um, support than he might have had. <laughs> and, we, and, and still, you know, and so we, we wake up in the beginning of our lives. It was, there's this wonderful um, passage that some of you know from the beginning of the uh, Divine Comedy by Dante, which is, I think, a metaphor for this sense of a new beginning. Dante begins the Divine Comedy saying that midway through my life, I woke up, it was dark, and I was in a thicket. It's kind of a metaphor, isn't it? (laughs) Midway through my life, I started to wake up, it was dark, and I was in a thicket. I wanted to to read the beginning of of Dante's uh, Divine Comedy. Because it really gives us this sense of, of a new beginning in the, midst of, in the midst of our lives. In the, middle of our, in, the, in the middle of the journey of our life, I came to myself within a dark wood where the straight way was lost. Ah, how hard a thing it is to tell of that wood, savage and harsh and dense, the thought of which renews my fear. So bitter is it that death is hardly more. I cannot rightly tell how I entered there. I was so full of sleep at the moment when I left the true way, but when I had reached the foot of a hill at the end of that valley which had pierced my heart with fear, I looked up and saw that its shoulders were already closed with the beams of the planet that leads human beings straight on every road. The time was the beginning of the morning. So he's waking up, it's the beginning of the morning, it's a new beginning, he's in a thicket, it's the middle of his life and the journey has begun. I think our lives are like that in a lot of ways. And so it's, it's, it's part of the practice just to continue to begin in the middle of thickets, to be, begin in the middle of difficulties. And it's one of, I think it's one of the glories of this practice that we can just have a difficult moment and we just sit and we begin again. It's something that um, when I was in Kentucky, we had a, a noon swim for staff and teachers there. I was teaching at the University of Kentucky. 
And I was starting to get to know the basketball coach at the University of Kentucky. And anyone who knows anything about basketball knows that basketball is big in Kentucky. I often thought that basketball is bigger than Jesus in Kentucky, and Jesus is pretty big in Kentucky. <laughs> and so my fantasy was that I would get to know the basketball coach because he, his name at the time was Joe B. Hall. Some of you old fans may remember him. And he taught basketball by fear. What this meant, and, and many of us studied these patterns very closely, what this meant was the basketball team, who were made up of incredibly talented people, would do very, very well at the beginning. Then they would have a hard stretch where they would make some mistakes. And because the teaching was by fear, they would, not be, they would become paralyzed. And they wouldn't be able to act to the best of their potential because they'd be thinking so much about the past and about how they had screwed up and what the coach was going to say to them. And so every year, the same thing happened. They would win their first seven or 10 games. And then they'd play against some inferior opponents. They'd make some mistakes. And they'd go into this inexplicable losing streak against inferior opponents because they were paralyzed. And I was thinking, I'll get to know the coach a little bit better. Tell him about meditation. <laughs> and the team will learn how not to be paralyzed. And they will, you know, when they screw up, they will just, oh, back to the present moment. <laughs> and they'll do better. And the whole of Kentucky, all the <laughs> junior high and high school boys and girls who listen to the radio every night to listen to the basketball games, you know, this, this is how it is there. They will start studying meditation, and the meditation revolution will begin in Kentucky. <laughs> um, as I was, just as I was getting to know him, he was fired. <laughs> so it didn't happen. But uh, in fact, the pattern happened. The same thing happened that year. They were an incredible team. And they got to the NCAA Final Four, which is like heaven for those of you who aren't basketball fans. I'm sorry. Just be with your breath through. <laughs> <laughs> The rest of the story. <laughs> anyway, this is I'm near the end of the story, but they they got to the final four at a halftime. They were playing uh, Georgetown, which some of you had Patrick Ewing. Some of you know him. He was a great player, and they were beating Georgetown by like I think it was 30 to 21. They were beating him by a lot. And what happened at the beginning of the second half? Georgetown scores eight straight points. They're, with, they're still ahead. They're within one point. But you could see it in their faces. They had already lost the game in the first two or three minutes because they got paralyzed. And the same thing happened. And they lost. <laughs> and. Um, and a short time later, I left Kentucky. <laughs> so I don't know who's working with the basketball team anymore, but it might happen someday. I know uh, John Kabat-Zinn got to work with the, um, with the Olympic rowing team in the 1980s. 
And so there is, anyway, I'm, I won't go further with <laughs> talking about sports, but it's, it's just, a, it's really um, a way of reminding ourselves of the incredible value. When something difficult happens, we have the resources of this practice. It can bring us back to the present. It can let us cut through the, ja- the, was, the jaming and the, <laughs> the bludging, I was going to say. <laughs> the blaming and the judging. <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> and and can take, let us go back to the present moment. Incredible, incredible value. You know, incredible value with this practice to be able to do that. And it really, it really goes back to that uh, question that you were asking about intentions, that the sense of new beginning has a lot to do with being in touch with our intentions. It's our intention to be aware, our intention to notice, our intention to uh, do the practice, that this is somehow what we need to um, strengthen in ourselves. That I think I talked once, but I've come to see what we do here as an incredibly simple practice. You know, we have detailed teachings about dependent arising, emptiness, non-dual, non-dual realization, etc. This practice is really about being mindful and then having a, good in, a clear intention in the moment. That's all it is. We try to be mindful. We try to see what's happening. And then, out of that, we say, what's my intention? That's all we do, moment after moment after moment. Everything else is sort of a gloss on that. And so it's useful to think of, think of the practice so simply because working with intentions is what really helps us to be present in, in the present moment, helps us to begin again. It's to come back to those intentions. And I think many of you know that intention was at the heart of the Buddha's teaching, that it's, it's how the Buddha talked about karma. Right? The Buddha said, intention... I tell you, is karma. When one intends, one does karma by way of body, speech, and mind. And it's that sense that it's with our intentions that we set in motion the future. So karma is not so much a doctrine of cosmic blame for what we did in our past or how if, you know, um, you know, we have bird poop in our car, it's because of passing the red light yesterday or something like that. That's not what, that's not what karma is about. It's really about the way that our moment-to-moment intentions set up our experience for the future. And, that's, 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 and so it's really a teaching about how when we have mindfulness and a clear intention, that's the moment of freedom. That's when we are able to see through the patterns of the past that bind us. And so it's that moment of intention is incredibly crucial. If we could simply check in many times a day and ask, what's my intention right now? We would strengthen our practice. It's simple. We just have to ask that question, what is my intention right now? And, and like we were saying before, it's not so much that we um, can't do the practice, it's that it's hard to remember to do it in the midst of our daily lives. It's hard to remember just to ask, what's my intention? But that really is the, the, um, the core of the practice, and it's the way that we can bring about these new beginnings. Because it's the, in the freedom of clear intention that we begin again each moment.
And so, in in uh, closing, I want to um, go back again to that sense of the deeper reflection about our lives that is also part of our intention, because we we have intentions both in the present moment, and we also can get in touch, especially at this time, with the larger intentions of our lives, both for ourselves, for our families, for our communities, and I think for our society and for the world. And it's very valuable to to be in touch with that kind, with those kind of visions. Strangely enough, I think that in order to have a very strong vision, as it were, for our future lives, we have to be deeply in the present. It's strange in that way. That I find that, um, in fact, I try not to make major decisions without a lot of time of silence. You know, that when I have major decisions often, which don't come all that often, but it could be a decision about a job change or a relationship or something that I need to do. I, I, in the past, have tried to take a day or two just to be quiet, just to really be with my deepest uh, wisdom. And it's something I love to do at the end of retreats, just to um, sometime, right at the end of retreats, I try to just sit and say, what has this retreat taught me? about the next phase of my life. And I just sit, some, I sit and I write for 10 or 15 minutes. And I have a little record there. And it's a really, I, I find that very, very precious in terms of uh, giving guidance. It's also, I think, that, that sense of um, looking for deeper vision in the depths of the present is something that I sort of surprisingly have also felt about the larger society, that I, um, that I, you know, many of us, I think, as I said, are maybe somewhat discouraged or depressed about, about, the, uh, about the state of the world, the state of the country. We may forget some of the very positive things happening. And I, I just want to tell a, a little story for myself that was very, very interesting that I think we get so habituated with the newspapers and the news that it's sometimes very hard to, to begin again and look freshly in terms of the larger culture. And I remember what time that I was doing a, a long retreat, a three-month retreat about, uh, it was about 1989. And right in the depth of this retreat, I was just sitting in the countryside. I was in England at the time. I was sitting in the countryside in this little cottage. You know, my contact with the world was pretty much had to do with working with the compost pile at the retreat center. That was it. <laughs> and, and right in the middle of that retreat, about two months into the retreat, with a lot of silence, I suddenly had the vision, why can't this world overcome racism? For me, it was the, the theme that was coming up. You know, why can't we? Why can't there actually be a development of our society where these things are in the past? And it was, it was really striking. I could see how much I, I was not in touch with that kind of vision, which must have motivated people like King and others, that there was some way that, there, that the layers of despair and sadness and depression were still there. And it took being two months into retreat to really have the vision come back more strongly. And I think that we, we somehow uh, need to do that. We need to have... Uh, access to our vision. You know, it may come from paying attention to our dreams. You know, sometimes 
we can have these incredible visions and dreams which can lead us either personally or collectively, you know, as in King's dream speech. But I think we have to have access to that visionary space to be able to guide ourselves, to be able to, to, um, to be able to begin again, not just personally, but as a culture. We need that very, very badly. You know? And I think that it's really um, in the practice. In doing the practice, for me, is how I actually get faith in the larger vision. Because I know in myself, and we can ask, if I know in myself that I can work with all the proliferating thoughts, that I can work with my pain, and that another option is possible, that I can be with my pain and not pass on the pain to myself further or to others or to the rest of the world just because I have pain. We know that there's another option. When I know that deeply enough in myself, to me that's the basis for having faith about how to bring that into family and community in the larger world. If I know that deeply in myself and have access to that vision, for me that's the basis for bringing a larger vision to, to the society, which we very, very, very much need. And I want to end with a, a story that I just heard a few days ago, uh, which, which illustrates that, that sense of vision in terms of the larger society. And it's a, it's a story that comes from um, Jerusalem, actually. It's a story called The Field of the Two Brothers. And some of you may have heard this. Um, it's a very old story. In fact, it's older, it seems, than either the Jewish or the... Uh, Muslim religion in terms of telling about why Jerusalem is, is such a special place. And here, here's the story. Way before there were even temples or mosques that were central to the life of Jerusalem, there was a large field where two brothers lived and they grew wheat there. And they lived together in harmony one brother was older and was not married, and the other brother uh, had a family. And they lived together, and they worked the fields, and they would um, pile the wheat in the middle of the field, and they would take, the, uh, they would take what they needed for each brother. At a certain point, and it's not really in the story, it's not really well known why they did this, they had a fight and they stopped talking to each other, and they built a fence. And they built a fence that separated their two sides, and they stopped talking to each other, and they still would um, harvest the wheat, they would work the wheat fields, but there was a division, and many years went by. And at one point, one evening, the older brother thought, you know, I get half of the wheat. And that's not really fair because my brother has a wife and children and he really needs more. And so he woke up <clears throat> in the middle of the night so his brother couldn't know what he was doing. And he took a barrel of wheat and he put it on the, um, in the big pile. Or he put it on his brother's pile, I guess. There were now two piles. He put it on his brother's pile. And curiously enough, 
that same night, the other brother thought, you know, we each get the same amount of wheat, but my brother doesn't have a wife or children. When he gets older, who's going to look after him? He'll need more wheat. <laughs> and so he, in the middle of the night, somewhat after his brother, he brought a barrel of wheat and he left it on his brother's pile. And um, the next morning, each of them noticed that the um, um, piles were about the same. And the older brother said, I've given something, but it's actually nothing. The pile has stayed the same. And so he says, this evening I have to give more. And he got a really, really big barrel. And he woke up, and he brought the barrel to the other side and put it on his, his other brother's, uh, his brother's pile. And curiously enough, a little bit later, the other brother woke up and he said, I've given something, but it looks like nothing. The pile has stayed the same. I must give a bigger pile. And so he did that. And of course, what happened? The piles looked like they stayed the same. And so the third evening, the older brother said, I've given something, but it still looks like nothing. I need a bigger barrel. And he got this big, big barrel of wheat. And he was bringing it to the other side. But at this time, the other brother woke up at the same time. And they came towards each other, and they saw each other, each with their big barrels. And at that point, they recognized each other. They hadn't spoken for years. And they hugged each other, and they tore down the, the wall. And it's said that this is the reason that Jerusalem became such a holy place, that God looked down and he said, this is a special place where two brothers can fight and later become friends. So I think it's that kind of um, vision, which actually that's the oldest story for Jerusalem, and maybe a story that can still be realized. But it's that kind of vision, I think, which needs to inspire us to, to act with our own lives and to act, um, to act for the world. I think if we keep cultivating that sense of, uh, of a new beginning, personally and in our larger lives, that quality of... Um, that quality of vision and inspiration, I think, can help us do some uh, quite marvelous things. So I'll stop here. Thank you. So many things are reverberating in me from what you said. Um, One of the... uh, uh, I spent Christmas Day with three of my difficult people. And um, the the surprising thing is that they were not difficult. Mm. (laughs) And at the end of the day... uh, my brother-in-law, who was one of the difficult people, said to me, you know, you seem so calm today. That's just wonderful. 
Which leads one to ask, who is the difficult person? <laughs> <laughs> but, but to also give myself some, some yeah. credit in this, um, my intention in that day was to be delighted at seeing each of these people. Yeah. And that's what I expressed to them. Yeah. And I do think that that set up the ease that then developed. Yeah. Wasn't because any of us was trying to be nice to one another. It's that we set up an intention. Mm -hmm. And it worked. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it just worked. These are difficult people for me. Yeah. And they weren't. Yeah. You know, I think there is a it, it, it renews that sense of possibility. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's a great story. Did everyone hear okay? And, and, you know, once we've done that with one difficult person, guess what? Um, we, we, we get a sense it's workable, you know. And, um, and did you also, uh, like when I was talking with Robin, did you have a sense that at certain moments you had little um, hooks come your way? Oh, yeah. And you had, to, you had to be mindful of them and, and not act on them, right? Yeah. You, you, where you can see them. Yeah. And, and just say, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 So, so that's the fruit of practice. You know, we it takes the mindfulness to be able to see a tendency in ourselves to react, and have enough space around it so we don't we don't react. Or maybe we react, but then we catch ourselves after ten seconds, and we say, I don't think I want to go there, right? And so I think that's, that's a direct fruit of just the sitting on the cushion and trying to bring that as much as possible into all parts of our lives. Because it's, it's, it's the mindfulness has to be there with the intention. You know, we have to have that ability to see. Um, yeah, please. Yeah. What I found helpful in dealing with my difficult people Yeah. Was, I guess I could phrase it as setting an intention, but it was more remembering that they didn't set an intention. It was almost seeing the innocence, that when they were really pushing my buttons, I had to remind myself, they're not doing this intentionally. Yeah. The word intentional has to do with you know, yeah. setting an intention. But every time I felt attacked, yeah. I'd ordinarily respond that I'd have to remind myself, they're not intending to attack you. You're yeah. feeling attacked, so it's probably something in here that needs to be looked at. Not yeah. Not, um, what's the word? Accelerating the process of yeah. attack and blame and attack and blame. Yeah. When I felt attacked, I just had to remind myself, they're not intending to attack you. That's mm -hmm. not their intention. Mm -hmm. Whether or not I set an intention to be mindful is irrelevant if I can remember that they didn't intend to hurt me. That's not their intention. Mm -hmm. And that helped me get through a lot of difficult people by remembering they're doing the best they can. They just don't have the tools to do better, neither do I. But mm -hmm. everyone here is innocent of yeah. intending harm. And that helped me get through it by putting us on an even playing field. Mm -hmm. That's great. That's beautiful. Uh, yeah, it's really... Um, that, that's part of the wisdom aspect. It's like understanding in some way that um, understanding in some way that these are like forces coming towards you. It's almost like a martial arts view. These are forces coming towards you. They're not always pleasant. 
but you don't have to take it personally. And you don't have to, um, you can see how it comes out of a certain confusion or ignorance or automatic behavior. Yeah, that, that's great, because a lot of people would say, why can't they get their automatic behavior together? <laughs> so it's really, it's really wonderful. Um, Catherine? Thank you. Um, Jan? I was going to say something about intentions that um, Sylvia said quite a while ago, and I just loved it. She said that she can set the intention and not have to figure out how it's going to happen. Hmm. And there was something very kind of freeing about that, because I know that I can get um, kind of concerned and, and then defensive about, oh, how am I going to work this? How am I going to, to make it all happen? And with setting an intention, there's almost a certain trust or faith that comes along with it that, that it'll be fine. All I have to do mm-hmm. is set the intention. Be relaxing in that trust and mm-hmm. faith, I think, allows me to be more present mm-hmm. um, with everything coming. Yeah, that's great. I mean, it's, it's um, yeah, I mean, and, and we can set intentions at um, so many different times or in different kinds of situations, we can set the intention. I can set a general intention in the morning, you know, may I be loving in my interactions or something like that. And, you know, and that may, may or may not be remembered, you know, three hours later. But it's setting something in motion where I can set an intention right before, like I think when we, when we say grace together, we often set intentions, you know, may I May we have this meal together be a time of warmth and sharing. Or I can set an intention right before I'm doing something that can have more of an impact. But I think it's like you were saying, it's like inclining the mind in a certain way, inclining our minds and hearts in a certain way. And I I think as we do it more, it has more effect, but it's it's a mysterious process, isn't it? Part, Part of what you're saying, yeah. And who can say when things happen, like in that story, who could say what led the brothers to um, give wheat to the other? 
You know, it was, I think that's maybe where the faith comes in. There's something in the human heart which is about connection or forgiveness. And, you know, it wasn't apparent. And, you know, in the newspapers of the time when that story was taking place, none of them would have reported the slightest possibility of peace, right? I'm a little bit critical of the newspapers at this moment, but probably it was, but it's something that when we know some of those depths ourselves, it's, it's, we have a sense that it might, it might happen. Please. There's a book called Sacred Hoop, which he wrote with some writer, that is about his meditation practice and his use of meditation with his championship winning basketball teams. That's right. <laughs> he currently coaches the Lakers, and he used to coach the Chicago Bulls, where he started this practice. And the idea was to bring all his players into the moment. So he's following your plan. <laughs> He's been very successful. <laughs> and the person who taught them meditation is a man named George Mumford, who uh, there was some, there was an interview with him about this in the Spirit Rock <coughs> newsletter uh, a year or two ago, wasn't? And I've heard him talk. He's I think he's based in Washington, D.C. Is he? Do you know? I think so. Yeah. And um, George uh, has been a meditation teacher himself, who sometimes t- his two main areas of teaching are prisons and NBA teams. Yeah. Uh, Some similarity. Uh, but, uh, but he, it's really, um, it's been remarkable. And I think the, the, you know, the players really totally got into it. It's amazing to read. I remember reading Michael Jordan talking about the effects of meditation. And, and I think it was, it, was, it was about being, they used the terminology of being in the present, of coming back to the present, of um, letting whatever has happened happen and you just stay in the present moment. So it's a very, um, it's a very powerful teaching. Please, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you. <laughs> um, what I what I like is the way that um, difficult people encourage us to begin freshly, and that's I think that's maybe where you were 
one w direction that I heard in what you were saying, and it, it ties together maybe with that's the Jerusalem story, which which uh, which which I loved. It was um, it was told by a storyteller named Joel Ben Izzy. That story, by the way, and I think there's a CD if you want to get it that he has. But but the way that when we when we're in interaction with difficult people, it's especially asking us not to stay immersed in the cycles of blaming and judging, right? But to somehow, how do you start freshly from a situation that seems incredibly knotted up? You know, and it's, it's that there are the social knots, which are very much like, the, like that sense of Dante with, you know, we find ourselves, I, w I start waking up midway through my life and I'm in a thicket, right? And here I am, I have, you know, and, and in fact that image is used so much. Uh, the Buddha used the image of the thicket a lot in talking about how we get caught, you know, how we are caught. He sometimes talked about the thicket of views that just, like that cartoon, that just are sort of imprisoning ourselves. But with difficult people, it's like we're in a thicket. And how do we begin again to sort of step out of the thicket? I think we could think of, so when you meet difficult people, if you haven't used up all your difficult person karma in the last week or two, if you, when you meet difficult people, think of it as the possible, you know, what would it take to have a new beginning with this difficult person? Please, maybe the, I think maybe the last question. I'm just wondering if you're taping these sessions like um, this. Yeah. I can tell you at the end of the okay, class. Thank you. Mm. So thank you for this. You're welcome. I I may have used up all my basketball stories. <laughs> uh, thank you, but it's. Um, yeah, it's, I mean, I think also we, it's the question of um, sometimes this practice can seem a little dry, abstruse, separate from daily life. Maybe that's not an issue, but for some people it is. And it's a question of, I think the, the, what I love about the difficult person practice is that it's very real, very practical. It's right there. And, and, and we can see, I think, stories like the basketball stories bring out how the same dynamics are happening for, for all people. And, there, and, and we all get caught in the past and blaming and judging. And when, we're, when there's a, a situation of fear and um, judging, it can make it, make it worse. You know? yeah, Phil Jackson used to say that there's a whole new breed of coaches coming along that don't work with the old military model. That, that's actually quite encouraging. I don't know how that is. Do any of you have um, either um, children or nieces or nephews who are doing sports in a different way? Yeah. I have a, a friend uh, that when I first met him, I found out he was a coach. My experience with coaches in gym was, wasn't very positive. Yeah. Uh, but he's a very joyful coach. Um, and one of the things he does is he teaches um, 
international dancing, especially Hungarian, mm. Romanian, Macedonian, Eastern European dancing, mm -hmm. and and very, just being very present. It's mm -hmm. Very tricky rhythms, very intricate footwork, mm -hmm. but being present with each each moment, being mm -hmm. in the body. And, uh, That's great. There's a real clarity and joy to that art. That That's great. You know, it, uh, sports used to be, and I think there are aspects that still are that way, but it used to be more about um, really touching certain spiritual and, I guess, physical sort of depths of the human being. And in, in other cultures, uh, sports obviously wasn't so competitive in the same way and so caught up with um, big business and so forth. But... Um, a friend of mine wrote a wonderful book, which you could tell your son. He's actually a, um, a meditator. He wrote a book about the spiritual and psychological dimensions of sports, possibly maybe in the bookstore. His name is Andrew Cooper, and the book is called Playing in the Zone. It's a great book. Maybe last, last comment, and then we'll, then we'll close. Well. <laughs> and he was very gentle. He was a very gentle man. But, and I think the hardest, and he was very successful as a coach because he loved his players and they loved him. There was some interaction mm -hmm. that was very real. And the hardest thing for him in coaching was that he had to win. Yeah. It was really hard. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But he was a coach. Yeah. Major. Yeah. <laughs> Great. I wish. I'm sorry. We're at the end. I'd love to hear some stories. <laughs> uh, so yeah, maybe I'd love to hear more stories. Um, so this concludes the <clears throat> New Year's beginning again sports talk. <laughs> uh, and let's just. Uh, I think uh, I have one announcement, and I don't know if you do, Abaya, but. Um, Remember that Sylvia is doing a day long on Sunday if you'd like to connect with her. Uh, do you remember the title? No. It's, <laughs> it's, do you? I think it has something to do with being in the body. It's a, the wisdom, the wisdom body or something like okay. that. Okay. Looking toward the light, wisdom teaching to inspire the journey. Great. So, just to remind you of that, and um, any other announcements? So let, let's close, and do, do see if you can find some time and place to uh, be quiet uh, for a few hours, a day or two, whatever, and take, you know, see if there's some time for reflection, for um, a deepened sense of where, where you're at. Let, the, let some of this sense of beginning again come out of the quiet, the stillness, the darkness, the quiet of the time, quiet of the, uh, the earth as it um, continues. As things are gr starting to bud, but there's still very much a sense of um, invisible um, development, isn't there? Invisible germination occurring sort of the stillness, the, uh, the quiet time for, for the earth as well.
So letting be present to what was most helpful from the talk or your meditation, your own reflections, something from this morning. And ask, are there any intentions which come out of this morning which I want to take further forward in my, in my life? <coughs> and so as with every morning, we Remember that we practice not just for ourselves, but for all. And we dedicate the learning, the insights, the value, the fruits of this morning to new beginnings for all of us, for all other beings, and for our world. Thank you very much, and see you next year. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.